We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. There are some parts of the Nicene Creed that are really basic and straightforward and quite easy to understand, but there are other parts of the Nicene Creed which are admittedly quite complex and very deep. And today we are getting into one of those deeper, more complex portions of the Creed, and as is always the case, we just don't have a lot of time to do it. But I think before we do that, I can maybe give you a little bit of comfort before the discomfort begins. I just want to call you today to not be discouraged if some of the things we get into are confusing. I am still learning quite a bit about the topic that we are talking about today, as are all Christians. It is complex, but I want to encourage us that that's not a reason to avoid it. Sometimes we have to hear things over and over and over again before they finally start to make sense, before they sort of click is what uh, the expression we use. So I want to encourage you, even if you don't understand what I'm saying, it's still good to hear it. And it's good to hear it often. And it's good to confess it often because just like reading our Bible, sometimes we just, we read things over and over again. Oh, it finally makes sense. So please do not be discouraged if you feel like you don't fully grasp the topic we're discussing tonight. It's okay. But we do have to talk about it. I I left you with a cliffhanger last week and I asked the question, what does it mean for God to have a son? What does it even mean to call Jesus the son of God? And that's what we're focusing on today in our Nicene Creed. And I could argue that the creed, the portion of the creed we're looking at today, is essentially making three points about who is Jesus. The first point is that Jesus is the Lord. The second point is that Jesus is the Messiah. And the third is that Jesus is the Son of God. It's, but it's that last point that the majority of our section is dedicated to explain. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? That's really the emphasis of this portion of the Creed, which makes sense historically, because if you remember the history of the Creed, this was largely the point that was in dispute between Christians and Arians. Everyone agreed that Jesus was the Messiah. Everybody agreed that Jesus was Lord, and they mostly had the same understanding of that. But it was when we became to confess that he is the Son of God that we departed. We went in totally different directions. So the creed wasn't as concerned to to elaborate on the Lordship of Christ or the, the Messiahship of Christ as it was to elaborate on what do we mean when we call him the Son And so we are going to follow in the footsteps. We're going to look at all three of those points from the creed today. But we're really going to focus and emphasize on that last point. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I think the best place to do that is to go to a passage in Scripture that I think does that. A passage in Scripture that I think does address the Lordship of Christ. It even in a very subtle way addresses the fact that he is the Messiah, but its primary focus is on Jesus as God's son. So would you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We are going to read the entire chapter together. I would invite you to stand for the reading of Hebrews chapter 1. A glorious chapter, as I think you will see. The first chapter of the letter written to the Hebrews 
Thus saith the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I argue that it's pretty clear from the opening of this passage that the author of Hebrews is trying to explain to people that Jesus is greater than an angel. Perhaps there were people in the first century who were trying to make sense of the uniqueness of Christ. This man is obviously not just some guy, but they didn't want to become Christians. They didn't want to worship him as the one true God. So they weren't willing to confess him as just a man, but they also weren't willing to confess him as God. So a good middle ground was maybe he's an angel. He's some divine angelic creature. And so the author of Hebrews wants to set the record straight on exactly who Jesus has always been and who he continues to be today. And he hits, I would argue, the same points that the portion of our creed hits today, that Jesus, unlike the angels, is the Lord. Jesus is, unlike the angels, the Christ. And Jesus is, unlike the angels, the Son of God. And there's a heavy emphasis on that last one, the sonship of God. So let's look at those in turn. Point number one, sort of a three-point sermon, if you will. Point number one, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Read verses two through four with me. Speaking of God, but in these last days, God has appointed, or forgive me, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs." 
The Lordship of Christ is introduced to us in this passage in a number of ways. Uh, The first way is that verse 2 introduced him as the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things. What the author, he's writing to Hebrews, right? He's writing to the Jewish people. So he's borrowing a concept from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it was important to be the firstborn son. Um, Because if you were born first, if you were the firstborn son, you became the heir. And what that meant was even if your father had 12 sons, when he died, he did not distribute his possessions 12 ways. The firstborn got to inherit everything. The firstborn son inherited everything that the father left behind. That's being used as a rough analogy here. Obviously, God the Father is never going to die. But the point of the analogy is this, that Christ is the Son of God, which makes him the heir of everything that belongs to the Father. Whatever belongs to the Father, it also belongs to the Son. And here's a pop quiz. What belongs to the Father? Everything. God is the authority, the author, the maker of absolutely everything. So what does that make Christ the Lord of? Everything. He is the heir of all creation. If it's created, it belongs to Jesus. He owns it. Everything is for Jesus. He is the heir. He is the authority. He is the Lord. He has a divine authority. But he returns to this lordship theme later on. I mean, he he also mentioned it in verse 4 from what we read, that Christ has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, that's authoritative language. He is sitting at God's right hand. He is God's right hand man. He is the power of God. He is sitting on the throne that gives him authority. Christ is the King. He is the Lord. We see this again in in verse 8. This kingship, lordship language. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So here Jesus is described as sitting on a throne and having a scepter, which was a symbolic... it It was real. Here it's symbolism. But kings typically actually do own a scepter. It's a long, golden staff. And that scepter was a symbol of their authority. He who held the scepter was the king. So Christ is on a throne with the kingly scepter reigning over a kingdom. You get the point. He's Lord. He's the king. I say that, and and uh, the proof of this for us as humans, the absolute proof of this is his ascension. That's what his ascension was supposed to communicate, that he ascended, and that was his coronation. That's when the king was crowned. Right? So look at verse 13, referencing his ascension. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet? When Christ ascended into heaven, he inherited in his incarnational state what he always had before that in his divine state, which was lordship. In his human form, he sat down at the, in the throne of heaven receiving God's authority to rule over creation and to conquer all of God's enemies. And this is, by the way, not just some random offshoot in the book of Hebrews. This is a massive theme in the New Testament. One example from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, saying, after Christ's death and resurrection, what happened? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's what our creed says, we, have, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, is so important that it is actually a necessary component of your salvation. You cannot be saved if you refuse to recognize Jesus as Lord. The same apostle writes, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you deny the Lordship of Christ, you are dead in your sins. That's how much this point matters. That's why it's in the creed. It is crucial, it is vital to Christianity that we see him as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says in Matthew 28. Now, before we move on to our next point about the Messiahship of Christ, I do, need, I do want us to begin, we have to do this as the creed continues, to sort of see how the Trinitarian nature of the creed is beginning to, to develop and take shape here. Because he, our creed refers to Jesus as the one Lord. Right? We have one Lord, Jesus Christ. But I don't know if you notice, when we were confessing it, when we get to the Holy Spirit, guess what we call the Holy Spirit? We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord. It, maybe this thought was actually on your head last week, because we were talking about our one God, the Father. And now we're talking about our one Lord, Jesus. So what are the implications of this? Does that mean that only the Father is God? Jesus isn't God, He's the, he's the Lord. And vice versa, God, the Father, He's not the Lord, He's the one God. So we have one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus, and you can't mix them. The creed obviously doesn't think that because they call the Spirit Lord. That's not how we're supposed to be reading the creed. And the author of Hebrews doesn't think that because the author of Hebrews calls Jesus the Lord. But guess what the author of Hebrews also calls Him? Look at verse 8. But of the Son, he says. So who are we talking about with this Old Testament citation? We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Son of God. And what does the Bible say about the Son of God? Your throne, O God. By the way, this is a citation from the Old Testament wherein Yahweh himself is speaking. God calls the Son God. The one true God looks at the Son and says, You are the one true God. So, what's going on here? Let me first back us up and defend the structure of the creed. The structure that the creed is following, whereas we identify the Father as God, the Son as Lord, and the Spirit as Spirit, is thoroughly and entirely biblical. If you read through your New Testament, from Matthew to Revelation, you will find that 95% of the time, that's how the persons of the Trinity are presented to us. And that is, generally speaking, how we ought to conceive of them. When the word God enters your mind, you should... First and foremost, think of the Father. And when the Lord, when the word Lord enters your mind, you should think of the Son. And when the Spirit enters your mind, you should think of the Holy Spirit. That's how the Bible presents God to us. I could give you tons of examples. They tend to, by the way, show up in the opening of books. You could just read probably the first opening of all the New Testament epistles and see this. But there's one example I want to show you because this is sort of how the creed is structured. This is where they got it from. Look at Paul in 1 Corinthians 
Notice what he says here. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is basically just the Nicene Creed, the first two articles. They got it just directly from Scripture. So it is thoroughly biblical for us to identify the Trinity as God, Lord, and Spirit. But because the persons of the Trinity are united in one essence, because they are three persons of one God, one essence, there is only one God, they have such a unity that while these are generally speaking the titles we attribute to the persons, they do apply to all the persons because of their unity in the Godhead. This is why Jesus in Hebrews can be called God. And it's not just in Hebrews. It's all over the Bible. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Lord, Jesus, the Son of God, is called God. And the Holy Spirit in 2 Corinthians 3 is called the Lord. So yes, the Holy Spirit is the Lord, and He is God. And Jesus is God. But that and the Father can be called the Lord, and the Father can be called God. But generally speaking, the way the Bible wants us to associate the persons with the titles, it's God the Father, the Lord, the Son, and the Spirit, the Spirit. But we will explore this even further as we continue to move on through the creed. Uh, the only point I wanted you to make here is when we confess Jesus as our one Lord, because the Son of God is united in the Godhead, it is not inappropriate to refer to the Father or the Spirit as Lord. You can do that. But generally speaking, when you think of the Lord, you want to think of the Son. And, just as a side note, this also helps us to organize our prayers. We see this pattern in Scripture of praying by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. You pray by the Spirit in the Lord and your prayers are directed to God. Trinitarian prayer, but maybe that's a sermon series in and of itself. So Jesus, back to the point, Jesus is our one true Lord. That doesn't mean we can't say the same thing about the other members of the Godhead. But for now, we are focusing on Christ as the Lord. But I just used an interesting word just now and it's a word that the creed uses, which is Christ. We don't just affirm Jesus as the Lord, we affirm Jesus Christ as the Lord. What does that mean? Look at Hebrews chapter 1 with me again and look at verse 9. Speaking still of the Son, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The creed refers to Jesus the way the Bible does, which is as Jesus Christ. Now, I know that sounds to us, like especially if you're a, a, one of our children in this room, I know that sounds very much like a first and a last name, right? Colin Brooks, Jesus Christ. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. As a matter of fact, it's a shorthand title. It really, we really technically should be saying Jesus the Christ, He's not Jesus Christ, he's Jesus the Christ. But the Bible says Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? Well, Christ is a Greek word, which was translated from a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word was Messiah. 
So when we call Jesus the Christ, that's just the Greek way of saying Jesus the Messiah. They're the same thing. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Now let me admit, I don't want you to think I'm trying to cram something into Scripture here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 doesn't really address Jesus as the Messiah in a very implicit way or explicit way. Uh, but I thought rather than turn our attention to the probably hundreds of verses I could point to, which very, very clearly establish Jesus as the Messiah, I want to just focus on an allusion to that fact in verse 9. Because notice, verse 9, quoting from the Old Testament, says that this Son and this Lord was going to be anointed by God in a special way beyond everyone else. He has a special anointing that no one else has. And guess what the Hebrew word anointing means? Messiah. The Hebrew word Messiah means the anointed one. So even here we have this, we have this allusion to the Son of God as the Messiah, the Christ, the one who has a special divine anointing. He is the one of the Old Testament prophesied. He is the coming Lord, the coming ruler, the coming God, the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus is the Lord and he is the Christ. But we need to get to our last point because that's what we have the most to say about. That not only is he the Lord and he is the Christ, but he is, and I'm going to say this more importantly, he is the Son. How could I possibly claim that one of these is more important than the others? The reason is because it is this last confession that grounds the other two. In other words, let me ask you this. As arrogant as it sounds, I think it's a legitimate question. Why did Jesus get to be the Christ? Why not me? Now, there's a lot of answers to that. Why does he get to be the Lord? Why, why does he get this, this amazing privilege to rule over all creation? Now, there, there is more than one biblical answer to that. But you want to know what is the primary reason of why Jesus got to be the Christ, why Jesus gets to be the Lord? The primary reason is because he is specially beloved by God. Well, that begs the next question. Why does he have a special love that none of us have? Because he's God's son. He is the Lord because he is the Son. He's not the Son because he's the Lord. He is the Christ because he is God's Son. He's not the Son because he is the Christ. This is the one that grounds the other things. When God was metaphorically thinking, who should I save the world with? Who should be the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord? There was no other answer than my only Son. Perhaps the most important confession of our entire Christian faith is that Jesus is the Son of God. Read verses 2 through 5 with me. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God has a son, and his name is Jesus. And it's not only vital for us to affirm that, it's vital for us to affirm how the creed defines that. 
How can God have a son? What it is about Jesus that makes him God's son? And the key phrase for us today is found in verse 5, that word, begotten. Jesus is God's son because he is begotten of God. The fancy term, like if, if you want to impress all your friends at your next Christmas party, uh, the fancy term we use for this is a doctrine called eternal generation. Or you could even phrase it as eternal begottenness. Generation and begottenness mean the same thing. He is eternally begat. He is eternally generated. And as simple of terms as I can possibly make it, the doctrine of eternal generation means that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, actually, naturally, literally comes from His Father. He finds His origin in the Father. Now, this is a, a hard metaphysical truth. And so the way the Bible describes this relationship as one coming forth from the other is the closest earthly analogy we have. Now, the analogy is way off in a lot of ways. We have to be very careful. But the closest earth, human analogy we have to this is how a father begets a son. A, a, a woman does not beget a child. She conceives a child. The father does the role of begetness. The father is the seed that provides that nature. He passes on his nature unto another. So our children come forth from our existence. This is why we call Christ the Son of God, because God begat him. He comes forth from the father's essence. The son, in other words, receives his essence from the father. Because he is begotten. That's literally what it means to be begotten. But now we have a problem on our hands. Beyond just, I'm sure, what's happening in your head, which is like, what? Beyond that problem, we have another problem on our hands. And that is the word begotten, which exists all over the New Testament. John 3.16, probably the most famous example. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. All over the Bible, the Arians were using this word for their side. They thought this word doesn't prove the Trinitarians correct. It proves us correct. And why? Because yet again, analogies always fail. Because here's what the Arians are saying. When I begat my son Matthew, he didn't exist before that begotten process, right? When I begat him, I literally brought him into existence. So if the son of God is begotten of God, what does that mean? At one time, he didn't exist and then God the Father brought him into existence. So they interpret begotten as a synonym for created. It's a metaphor for created. God the Father created him. Brought him into existence. And that's why the famous Arian slogan was, There was once a time when he was not. They said the Son of God was created. And that's what the word begotten means. And that's why in our creed we affirm begotten not created. We have a different understanding of begotten. Ours is an eternal begottenness. Eternal generation. Not a created generation. Now, how could we seek to prove who is correct? Well, let's let the scriptures do that. Let's let Hebrews chapter 1 do that. I think Hebrews chapter 1 gives us a variety of reasons as why you should definitely reject the Arian creed. And you should definitely accept the Nicene Creed. And let me just begin with argument number one. The reason you cannot say that the Son being begotten means He is just created 
is because he has a unique begottenness. He is the only begotten. Look at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? The kind of sonship that Jesus has is unique. No one else has it. Angels, according to however begotten is used in Hebrews chapter 1, are angels begotten? No. And the logic is this. Angels are greater than us. So if they're not begotten, then we certainly aren't begotten. So angels are not begotten. Humans are not begotten. Only the Son is begotten. But let me ask you a question. Are angels created? Yes. Are you created? Yes. So if begotten means created, then angels are the begotten sons of God. As a matter of fact, this might confuse people because the Bible speaks in that language. The Bible does call angels the sons of God. We saw last week, the Bible calls all of humanity God's offspring. We saw last week, Romans chapter 8, and many other chapters called Christians have been adopted into God's family so that they are now what? Children of God, sons of God, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So there is a sense in which we are sons of God, humans are sons of God, angels are sons of God, and yet here's the author of Hebrews saying God has one son. How do we make sense of this? Because we're not talking about the same kind of sonship. They're totally different kinds. There is a sense in which we are sons of God. But Hebrews is talking about something different. It's talking about a begottenness that no one else has, which means we're not talking about creation. Because we are all created. But Jesus has something unique, a unique relationship to the Father that created beings do not have. As a matter of fact, if you're not comfortable with arguing implicitly the way I've just done, Hebrews chapter 1 explicitly tells us that the Son is uncreated. Look at verse 2. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Now you understand why in the Nicene Creed we say, through Him all things were made. Completely biblical. Jesus is our creation. Creation is the work of the Son's hand. Now, what's, what's beautiful about this is we yet again see more of the Trinitarian nature of the Nicene Creed because earlier, last week, we affirmed that the Father was the maker. The Father is the maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And now we've turned and said it is through the Son that the Father made everything. We see the Trinity unfolding before our eyes. There's a difference between the persons, but they are so united in one essence, so united in their Godship, that we can't actually take one work and take it away from the other. The Father and the Son, because they are together unified in our one God, are both our Creator. So is the Father your Creator? Yes. Is the Son your Creator? Yes. But there is only one God. And so the way the Scriptures speak of this to help us just barely understand this mystery is to think of the Father as creating through the Son, by whom the Son created all things. But the Son, the point is this, Jesus Christ is the maker of heaven and earth. He created it. We are the work of His hands. And it's not just said here. Look at verses 10 through 12. Remember, verse 8 established that these Old Testament verses are all speaking about the Son of God. And what does verse 10 say about the Son of God? And you, Lord, 
laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus Christ is the maker of everything. He's the creator. And it's not, again, this isn't just the book of Hebrews. This is attested to all throughout the scriptures. I want you to read my favorite example from Colossians. Here the Apostle Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile him to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let me just say, you would never dare say this about an angel. You would never dare say this about one of your fellow mere human beings. You can only say this about God himself, the Son of God. The one who not only made all things, but the one whom all things are made for. The whole universe is made by Jesus, and it's for Jesus. And here the apostle is clearly telling us that Jesus is fully God. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity. Fully God, Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one, the Lord of all things, and he is the creator, the maker of all things. Here's why this matters for the Arians. How can the Son of God be both a creature and a creator? Can you create yourself? No, because you have to already exist to do the work of creation. Nobody can create themselves. If we have this divide, this huge divide in reality between creature and creator, which side is Jesus on? The Arians are trying to cram him in the middle, but there's no middle ground. You're either a creature or you're God. And Jesus is the maker of all things, visible and invisible. That means that puts him on what side of the divide, creature or creator? Creator. He's not a creature. He's not made. That makes him Uncreated. That makes him eternal. He is begotten, but he is eternally begotten. By the way, the only person who says this even more clear is John, who says in John 1, 1 through 3, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Here, that last phrase is very important. There are some things that are uncreated. There is at least one thing that has no beginning and no end. And you know what we call that one thing? God. So let me affirm for you, the Son of God did not create God. Because God was not made. But anything else that was made, if it has a beginning, if it is made, according to John, who made it? Jesus, the Word, the Son. So if the Son of God is one of those things that was made, who is the one who made the thing that was made? The Son? The Son made Himself? You see, this is absurd. When the Bible tells us that Jesus is our Creator, it is telling us that He is uncreated. 
When we worship Jesus, we are worshiping the eternal God, not a created being. He is begotten, but he is not made. So that means that however we understand begottenness, it has to be an eternal begottenness. He has to be a son who came forth from the Father eternally. Which, by the way, one of our most famous Christmas passages actually tells us. You want a Christmas passage? Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The title ancient days is a Hebrew expression for eternity. This is why Daniel can refer to God himself as the ancient of days, the eternal one. So here, Micah, in promising us a future Messiah, in promising us a future Lord, is telling us, where does that Lord come from? Who is this Messiah? Who is this Lord? He comes forth from the Father eternally. He has been begotten eternally. He comes forth from the ancient of days. This is why in our creed we confess him as begotten from the Father before all ages. That's just Micah 5. That's not Greek philosophy. That's Micah. He is eternally begotten. He is begotten before all ages. He is begotten. He is not made. That's why you need to affirm Nicaea. But let me just give you one more. And this will help us to further understand what it means to be begotten. Another reason why we know that the Son is uncreated, the uncreated begotten God, is because He has the exact same essence as the Father. What does the creed say? The same essence as the Father. And again, this isn't philosophy, this is Bible. Read verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1 with me. Speaking again of the Son, whom God has spoken to us through, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Let's stop there. The Son of God has the exact same nature as the Father. This is why we confess one God. There's only one divine nature. There's only one divine essence, and both the Father and Son share it exactly. So let me ask you this. If the Father's nature is eternal then what kind of a nature must the Son have to have the exact same one? Eternal. An eternal nature cannot be exactly represented by a created nature. That's a gap between the two bigger than the Grand Canyon. There is nothing in common between creature and uncreated. And yet Jesus' essence is the exact same as the eternal God's essence. If Jesus being begotten means he was created, we could never say that he is the exact representation of the Father's nature. Jesus could never say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He could never say, for I am in the Father and the Father is in me. A creature could never say that. And this is why Nicaea's statements are helping us to understand now what it means to be begotten. He is uncreated. He has the same essence from the Father. So what does that mean? That means that the Father communicates, passes his eternal nature to the Son. And this is what the creed means when it says God from God. We have God, and then we have the second person of the Godhead who is God because he comes from God. He receives the fullness of God's essence. That's why they have the same nature. God has passed his essence along to the Son, but this didn't happen in time. This is an eternal description of who God is. 
eternally he is God from God. And, and the creed even throws a metaphor in there, light from light. And guess where that metaphor comes from? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Some of your Bibles will translate that very differently. It's a hard verse to translate because it's a metaphor. But there's the idea that God is this glorious light. And the Son of God is the light that we see emanating from that light. He is the light that shows us just how bright and beautiful the light is. He is a light that comes from light. He is light that emanates from light. He is light from light. It's just Bible. He is God from God, light from light. And just in case you're tempted to think that all means creation, they add in true God from true God. He's not just a God that was created from God. He's the one true God because he receives the essence of the one true God. This is why Jesus can call the Father the one true God in John 17. And yet the same John who heard that and wrote it down in one of his epistles calls Jesus the one true God. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. So who's the one true God, the Father or His Son? Yes. They both are. Because the Son has received the same exact nature as the Father from the Father. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Merry Christmas. Now, uh, I'm, I'm, I should just cut my conclusion out because I've already gone too long. I just get excited about this stuff. I, I understand we've covered a lot. But believe it or not, there's actually a lot about eternal generation that I've left out. And still more that I have yet to learn. Having only barely scratched the surface, though, I think we, we can maybe try to simplify some of the ground that we have covered. What is that so important for you to walk away with today? What, what do you want to walk away with? Let me just try to narrow this down as best I can. What's important to know is that the Nicene Creed is biblical in what it says about the Son. It's not speculation. And what it says about the Son is that because He is begotten, that means He comes forth from God. He is God coming from God. He is God from God. In this coming forth, He receives the fullness of the Godhead. He is the begotten God. But this is not something that happened in time. He did not become created. It's a description of the eternal God internally. Therefore, the Son is begotten but not created. And He alone is the eternally begotten God from the Father. He is the only begotten Son. And I hope you can see how important eternal generation is now. I hope you can see that Nicaea is not just biblical, but it's extremely helpful because what it's doing is it's helping protect us from two very serious Christmas heresies. It protects us from Sabellianism, which says the Son and the Father are the exact same person with just different names. But how can a son be his own father? How can a father be his own son? No, there's clearly a distinction between the Son and the Father. One is unbegotten, the other is begotten of the unbegotten. There's a difference between the Father and the Son. Sabellianism is false. But the creed is also protecting us from Arianism, which says, yeah, there is a difference. And that difference is so big, one is the true, untrue God, and the other is an eternal divine angel. Or, an, uh, forgive me, a created divine being. We're saying, no, 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 no. The Father and the Son are different. One is unbegotten, one is begotten. But they have the exact same essence. They are both the one true eternal God. This creed is helping us to understand begottenness in such a way that we make sense of the word without falling into one of these two heresies.
It's very, very important. It helps us, in other words, answer this question, who is Jesus? The very question we're about to sing about. What child is this? It's a good question. Who is this child that we celebrate at Christmas time? And the song does a plenty good job at explaining who this child is. But let's just add on to whatever we're about to sing this list. That he is God himself. He is the very son of God. And just as he is completely man like us, he is completely God like his father. What child is this? The only begotten God, our very creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. 